Good morning, diners and um, shelterers in the house, <laughs> uh, wherever you may be. Um, you're listed on the menu with Anne and Peter Haig, and we're going to be bringing you some interviews today with um, people reflecting on the, our current social and economic status, um, starting with... By the way, we hope you're all doing okay as best you can in the circumstances. Yes, it's uh, and, certainly and we, and we are, times. And we are, and we are too. And uh, we're getting inquiries from around the globe as to how, how um, we're managing yeah. to cope. So yeah. we're pleased to be able to report that we're doing okay, and we hope you and yours are too. And starting out today's program, we have someone who's doing something rather special in this in these troubling times. Go ahead, love. Yes, it's um, Elaine Bellin, who's an old friend and uh, a remarkable woman who has uh, handled uh, her family's business, Paragon Foods, for, um, what, 30, 35 years, really effectively, is now in a, a, a different market niche, and she's doing some interesting things. So we'll talk to her about that. Also about how she's very generously supporting those people who need support at this time. Exactly. Elaine Bellin, uh, who's CEO of Paragon Foods. Uh, it's been a long time since we've talked, but we go back quite a long way. And you have a long history with the company, and the company has a long history. Uh, for our listeners, let's start at least. Uh, tell us about Paragon Foods, a company that your grandfather founded. Tell us the history. Uh, well, it's nice to be with you, Anne, and it has been a long time. Um, you have given me uh, so many wonderful recommendations, and for that I'm grateful. But anyhow, Paragon was started by my grandfather, uh, who had always owned retail stores, retail f- uh, fresh food stores, primarily in the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, he saw a vision for food being prepared outside of the home in the early 1960s. So this was in addition to the small retail stores that he had in town, Paragon. And my father ran it. Uh, so along the way, Paragon not only carried fresh fruits and vegetables, but they expanded to include some frozen foods and dry goods and so on. Uh, that lasted until 1999 when I decided to take it back to fresh. Uh, I had come to work at Paragon in 1986, just after I graduated from college full-time. I had worked there a few summers prior. A young um, woman in, in, a, in a predominantly male world. <laughs> Amazing. I uh, predominantly is, is a very good word. I, I don't think there was another uh, woman that was out uh, on the road selling uh, the way I was, but I enjoyed it. I certainly um, found the people to be uh, extremely uh, welcoming, salt-of-the-earth, hardworking people, and that's what truly attracted me to this industry because I had gone to school for something totally different, and it was never anticipated that I would come into the business except for the love of the people working in the kitchen. That's so in 1999, uh, fast forward from 85 to 99, we 
decided that uh, we wanted to take back all of fresh product. And so we uh, did away with canned goods and frozen goods and any ancillary items that we had as a full-line distributor, leaving that to the broadliners. We felt that Cisco and U.S. Foods and um, uh, Reinhardt Foods did that much better, and so we specialized in fresh foods. And that is still our specialty today uh, with the addition of freshly processed items. We have a division of the company called Just Cut, and it is exactly what it says. We take fresh food products, vegetables and fruits, and we cut them today, and they are delivered tomorrow to our cup. That is a, a convenience. Uh, it's a value add for very busy operators that um, up until recently simply didn't have the personnel to dice and slice, yes. but yet wanted to offer fresh foods. So uh, we found that to be a very rewarding uh, area of the business, and it has great growth potential. So besides Just Cut, um, Paragon also has an Epicurean part of our business, a very good longtime Pittsburgh company. The John V. Heinemann Company um, merged with us four years ago, and all I, of the... I love, I love Heinemann, by the way, and I went to an event there in, is it Lawrenceville? Where, yes. And um, I didn't realize that he had died. <laughs> I, just, I was so shocked because I dealt with him for so many years. Yes. He was a character, wasn't he? Yes, 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 yes. Jack, Jack uh, Kettler was a, quite a uh, wonderful guy and yeah. uh, interesting guy, and he certainly knew Epicurean products very, very well. Um, but when they did move from Lawrenceville because of all of the development in Lawrenceville, the arsenal was taken over completely for that large apartment uh, complex. Uh, we saw an opportunity to have them join forces with us in our new warehouse in Warrendale. We left Lawrenceville as well, but for different reasons. We left because we simply outgrew our facility and uh, needed a new facility. So we built a new facility in Warrendale, which uh, has wonderful access to uh, all of our customers, both in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania. And um, now, we what about them. Monteverde? I mean, I noticed they still list Monteverde Supermarket online. Uh, they are another distributor, but they're in a different place. They're not associated with Paragon at all. Oh, okay. I thought so, that you acquired Monteverde. There was a time when we did work together, but that hasn't been for over 10 years. Oh, wow. Am I so, behind yeah. the time? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so then we added the Epicurean category as well. So we are truly a niche distributor, if I, if I can say so, uh, and that we offer really categories that our customer base can use. Uh, we do a lot of business with independent restaurants, country clubs, hotels, clubs, various clubs. Uh, we do a lot of business with. Uh, the college and universities, healthcare, and so they all use Epicurean products. They all use value add products, and they all uh, and really uh, are using more and more fresh fresh products. So now it brings us to one of our big points of discussion: is 
and all of these, your customer base, your market region, is all shifted because everything's closing down. Right, right. Uh, it's been really devastating to many independent local restaurants. The restaurateurs have no work um, and no income. They've had to lay many, many, many people off. So it's really devastated small business uh, and even some of the uh, larger either local or regional chains are struggling as well. Uh, when, when something gets completely cut off, like service in a restaurant, then the engine stops, and that's what's happened here. So the restaurants that are still operating, very, very few. But for us, it's been about uh, 10% two weeks ago, maybe 12% last uh, week. We're seeing... Uh, we saw an, a nice um, blip over the weekend, so we anticipate staying in the teen area um, while. So, what was the lift out. from? Where, where did the lift come from? Well, it's all takeout. So, um, the national chain restaurants, whom we service as well, uh, for example, the Olive Gardens and the Texas Roadhouse, they seem to be doing very, very well with. Uh, with the takeout, and then when you have the regional, um, the regional restaurant chain, our own Eaton Park, uh, they're offering takeout and and seemingly uh, doing well with that. Hello Bistro is another uh, one of their concepts, right. and they've never closed. They're doing takeout. Uh, Big Burrito Group on kind of the higher mm-hmm. end restaurant cha- chain now, the the local chain, they're they're seeing uh, some nice sales. And, and takeout as well. Uh, and independent restaurants are offering takeout. And they're getting support from their neighborhood. Yeah, and they're also they're, they're selling gift cards, uh, future investments, and yeah, giving money for their... Gift cards don't translate into, into food purchases from Paragon. No, <laughs> but it's just... I, we interviewed um, Trevor Hooper from... Um, legume, I guess it's now um, butter joint, um, and he's doing. He didn't anticipate this kind of response, but the the model for takeout wasn't really going to suit him because of um, his employees were really nervous about interacting, interfacing with the public at all. So he had all this inventory and um, uh, and what to do with it. So. He decided he would sell the inventory, never expecting that the very first day he offered this, this was, you order it, they deliver it, no contact to your door. He got a 100 orders. That was the first day. And so his philosophy now, his business model is he wants to rebuild his restaurant business uh, one meatloaf at a time, he said. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's there's a lot to that. I think that given... What has happened, our industry will be transformed, maybe not in a big way, but it will be transformed. And I think that the mix of uh, millennials uh, and how they like to eat now on the go, they don't experience, they don't fully appreciate or have 
had the time to eat the way we used to eat in a, in a, uh, a restaurant, right? right? It's an experience. It's socializing. It's having communication with one or more people, looking at them when you talk. And, and, and young people simply, have, there's a shift. They don't do that. And that's not a commentary. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. So for them, it may be a waste of time to go to a restaurant to sit there and eat. But it may a, a service for them to be able to pick up or to have the food delivered to their house, some of their favorite meals. The Gobblerito, for example, when Mad Max brought that back, they sold out immediately. They offered it only two of their locations because it comforted people, right? They wanted to go back to a familiar flavor. So I think that takeout probably will increase just in general, even when the actual facilities and and restaurants uh, reopen. Um, but it, there is going to be a transformation. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, and I don't know if it will be dramatic. We're expecting something. Well, now, there's, there's, there's another reason why we invited you onto the program, because of extraordinary, shall we call it, extraordinary gestures of, of kindness and thoughtfulness in, in dealing with a community that's struggling. Tell, tell, tell us about the giant giveaways well uh we are so grateful to the restaurants and the customers that have helped paragon and helped build our company over the years they're our friends i think that that's the beauty of this business and i as i've said when i first came into the business i was drawn to the people that worked in the business they were salt of the earth people, and they were hard-working people. And they became my friends over the 35 years I've been in. So with this situation, this kind of devastating situation to many of us in the industry, rather than discard perfectly good fresh fruits and vegetables and some other, we had some dairy products that were getting close to date, we decided to offer that to many of our customers and the people that were laid off, people that worked there. So we've had two giveaways. We had one last Thursday. Uh, It was a smaller group, uh, but it was so successful that, um, and we were, it just warmed our hearts to see people truly, truly appreciate having um, that type of food, fresh food. So we did it last Thursday. It was very successful. And then we did it again today, uh, this morning, from 10 to 12. And it was just, again, another wonderful, wonderful crowd of people. They didn't come in at once. You know, they kind of cycled through very cautiously and safely. But we had almost two tractor-trailer full of uh, product uh, being consumed by, you know, these wonderful people that work in our industry and family and friends of the industry. Well, now, had you considered actually moving to a retail, online retail market for some of this product? You know, some other, uh, some other distributors in the country that we're friendly with, uh, had done that, but I didn't know how long it would last. I thought it would be temporary. I didn't 
plan for that. So I'd like to offer new programs that we plan for and not rush into. So I didn't think it would work here for us. And frankly, I wanted to stay focused on what we do and what our future looks like rather than to switch to a different segment uh, kind of, you know, quickly and maybe without a lot of knowledge or forethought. Yeah, it's a so, totally different model, I think. I mean. It is, and I and I need time to prepare and study and, and you know, develop uh, if I'm going to offer something to market. Uh, but this this was a great alternative is to, for all intents and purposes, rather than sell the, the boxes that we just let people take it. Well, so you, well, it, you. it was it just it made everybody at Paragon feel good about what we did, uh, and seeing um, you know our friends in the industry benefit was was heartwarming. Your generosity is admirable. Admirable. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard word to get out. Huh? Thank you, but Peter. It, but it, Elaine, it's. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you. To yeah, talk I to wanted you. her to say something else, though. It, it, well, hold on a second. Yeah. It, it, it puts a, a small amount of smiling face in, in, a, in a space where there isn't much to smile about. We have to be grateful for little things, too. Well, I, I wanted to mention, um, you, we talked briefly about how you picked up the um, CSA pro- program from Penn's Corner. Yes. And, so, uh, yeah, explain that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in uh, November, we did um, take over the Penn's Corner name and started working with their farmers. We have gotten to know them very, very well. Uh, with the recent uh, circumstances of COVID-19, we are not able to commit to the CSA program this year that Penn's Corner has offered but we do hope to be able to offer some of their products, um, maybe in a different way. We're not sure what that looks like. We have committed to the farmers that we will be purchasing uh, the local product for sale at Paragon. It will go to the restaurants uh, probably more than it has in the past because of our uh, the number of customers that we have and our geographical reach. So it will much more available um, in the restaurants than it has been in the past. And we do hope to develop something um, with a retail bent in the future. Uh, right now, it's, it's just been a challenge to concentrate on that and try and deal with everything else that we've had to deal with. Uh, Elaine, you've been around this market for so long, this industry for so long. Um, in your best guess, I mean, because nobody really knows what's going to happen. I mean, how long do you think we're going to be under this kind of strictness of um, movement and and lifestyle? And you know what I mean. Well, we're going to be under the the lifestyle change. Um, I think for a shorter period, um, in terms of kind of the social distancing, and even after that is lifted, people will be very cautious about their social proximity to others. They'll worry about potential another potential uh, outbreak on some virus, some pandemic in the future. But I think more so that our economy uh, will suffer. Uh, there's been a, just the beginnings of a domino effect here. And that uh, people will eventually be a little more cautious about how they spend their money eating out 
than before. My father has always talked about the Great Depression. And my mother, he, too. <laughs> he grew up in it, and his lifestyle was impacted um, by that so greatly that he never, ever got a credit card. Oh, really? <laughs> never got a credit card. My mother had them, but not my dad. So that had a real impact on his life, and I think that this will have an impact on how we go forward. And I think that we were going to value things differently because probably uh, the money, the discretionary income is not there to spend like it was the past 10 years. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever get back to what we had. I do believe that this community and the people in our industry are just really, you know, hardy and they're workers and they're determined and they're hopeful and that we will be able to have these wonderful restaurants open up soon. Uh, hopefully in the summer they'll be back maybe into a greater routine. I do think that with the, the recent recommendation of continuing the social distancing for another 30 days, uh, we may not see any restaurants open uh, in the ne- in next 30 days. But hopefully we'll start to see them open up uh, as we come upon some of the, the holidays uh, Mother's Day is approaching in mid-May. I'm hoping that, that maybe that w- they'll be open for Mother's Day. And then uh, as we go throughout the summer, uh, I'm very hopeful that they'll start opening. And and uh, the business will come back. Uh, it will come back slowly, but I, I hope it comes back for many of them. Well, I thank you for sharing your, your experience, your life experience, your work experience, and, and your, your, your wisdom from all this experience with us and uh, I hope your positivity really translates into reality pretty soon. And I do as well. It's been wonderful uh, reconnecting with with both of you and uh, I appreciate you having me on the show and really enjoyed enjoyed, uh, my time with you. And don't go away because we'll be back with another heartwarming story right after the break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to be next talking um, to... Uh, an entrepreneur who, um, who she's actually in, in Madrid, living a good life, I guess. Um, the, she's addressing a different issue, an issue that uh, shouldn't get lost in our current situation. That is on um, sustainability, um, eliminating food waste. Um, and I guess when Peter said it was heartwarming, he might be talking about the fact that the the name of the product is food huggers. <laughs> and I, I we're talking th- to Adrian I, McNicholas. I, I was thinking about the fact that her, her relationship with that guy broke up after they got to Spain. <laughs> that, that's more of what I had in mind. But but it didn't break. They didn't break up. Anyway, it's all part of the story. So here's Adrian. <laughs> Adrian McNichols, McNicholas, right? Is that 
McNicholas? McNicholas. McNicholas, yeah. Adrian, you are an entrepreneur and you're living in Madrid, the good life. I keep wanting to get into your head to find out how you came up with this concept for food huggers. I mean, it, it's been a problem, and everybody's tried to have a solution. Um, every time I wrap something in plastic and disposable plastic in the kitchen, I, I want and have to throw it away. I get mad at myself. But I even went so far as I thought using shower. Um, caps would work <laughs> except you couldn't put them in the dishwater what what gave you the key to these absolutely very successful and well received products well the, it's funny the food huggers um, were designed and we were working on ideas for how to keep fruits and vegetables fresh and we've been looking at lots of solutions and options that were already out there and there were lots of things that were sort of like a a box that's shaped like something or some kind of container to hold the half orange or half tomato, whatever needed to be saved. And at some point while we were working with the the actual fruits and vegetables, we thought, well, actually, Mother Nature has already designed a really great protective cover in the peel or, you know, the skin of the fruit or vegetable. And that's actually a fantastic protection for the fruit itself it's just that when you cut it it's really just that cut side that you need to cover or protect the rest of the fruit and veggie is fine on its own sort of with the the protection that mother nature gave it and so we started working on ideas that you could have an adjustable cover that would adapt itself to fit around fruits and veggies of different sizes. And we took a few tries at that. Uh, we knew that silicone would be a great material for that. And, you know, bit by bit, we, we honed in on, on the food hugger idea. And it, and they work they work so well. They're, they're a real, the way they fold in means that you don't really need to know how big your tomato is. You just need to ballpark it. So uh, however big the fruit or veggie is, the food hugger folds down and it sort of collapses into itself for whatever size you need to cover, you need to save. So it was, it was a really, it was an interesting process where we realized that the aha moment that people always talk about was that uh, we really only needed to protect the the cut side of the fruit and vegetable. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, and then that you moved. That was your first product, and um, you, you got. It was really well that received, and you've been featured all over magazines, food shows, all kinds of things. Um, and then you progressed to the that ch- the challenging thing is lids, yes. <laughs> flexible lids. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how many times I've sworn in my uh, cabinet where I keep the the um, plastic containers with the lids that never fit the right things. <laughs> So, exactly. Well, it, it's the same kind of, of challenge, I think, that, you know, we, we've all, some of the problems in the kitchen are practically universal, that almost every single one of us has had it at one point or another. And, you know, trying to find a lid that matches a base for some kind of food storage <laughs> dish is something we've all done. And um, And from our perspective, you know, we also wanted to try and find a way where you could get the fresh seal and the, the storage without having to take everything out of your serving bowl or out of your own bowls into a separate 
container. It just right. seemed like a lot of duplicate work. When there, you know, once we knew that we had a way where we could have a food hugger which would adapt to all different sizes, tomatoes and peppers and onions and lemons, and we thought, well, if we can handle that, bowls should be relatively easy to predict. They're all circular. Um, and we started to tackle it from that perspective and, and create something that would fit the bowls that people have at home, and the lid just adapts itself to fit your bowl. Now, you, you, you have these made in, in Spain? No, the products themselves are actually made in China. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, dear. So uh, you've had yes. disruptions or not? Pro- production Pardon? disruptions? No. Um, not right now. There, I mean, I think each different region of the world is having their turn with, uh, right. with work disruption, but, uh, but they're fine. At this point, they're fine and they're back to work and, and now it's our turn to be a little bit disrupted and working from home and then hopefully, uh, in a little while we'll all be fine also and back to our usual routine. Oh, I always love an optimist. <laughs> I mean, it makes me feel. <laughs> Yeah. That's all you, I know, really, is, is to be optimistic. <laughs> now, you're really selling convenience here as well. These are all uh, dishwasher safe and, and so forth. Um, and, and the problem is really serious with this uh, this one-use, single-use plastic stuff. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and but you know, one of the things that also is attractive about you, I mean, the flexibility, certainly, but... Is so well designed. Now, how did you get this design going? Well, uh, I have a, a, a partner, Michelle Ivankovic. She and I started the company together uh, in 2013. And Michelle has an incredible talent for making things beautiful. Oh, well, these and, are beautiful. Uh, for just, yes, yes, for making something that as soon as you see it, you're like, wow, it looks great. Um, and that's one of my favorite things, to be honest, about the bull huggers is there's they're a very smart invention. It's very intelligent. It's sustainable. It replaces plastic waste. And it also makes the inside of my fridge just look fantastic. <laughs> so for me, so they, I'm always a little bit, I'm always a little bit grateful for Michelle's talent when I open up the fridge and it's like, oh, the fridge looks so great. It's gorgeous. So, so these are called food huggers and? Just the food and huggers. Food, and food hugger lids. Yeah, they're food hugger lids. Are the, are the okay, covers right, right. For got it, got it. Food huggers and food huggers flexible lids, yes. Yeah. So, um, now, what's, how difficult was it? Now, you started this in 2000. So you were already in Spain when you started this. Yeah, actually, yeah, I'm based in Spain, and actually Michelle's based in Amsterdam, and uh, the two of us met at the same company in Toronto 20-some years ago. Um, so, you know, we just always got along. And, and so we're a very, very virtual company here at Food Huggers. We're, uh, we have people, everyone works from home, so we all work from our homes and meet online. Uh, there's no Food Huggers headquarters anywhere. Just Yeah, it's just all of us working virtually from home. And we've got people in Canada and people in the States and Jamaica uh, we've got people in Kenya, um, so we've got a very international team. Now, what what happened to the guy? <laughs> Which guy? The, the, <laughs> the, the guy, the guy who was the reason, the approximate reason why you got to Spain. Oh, 
<laughs> I knew he was going to ask that. The, the guy, I was like, what guy? No, that guy. That guy. Uh, he Well, he and I live here in Madrid, and, and he actually he has a blog about Spain, and he does uh, travel writing, actually, for the BBC. So he's a, a writer, photographer, blogger, and just sort of general storyteller about okay. uh, travel and, and Spain and food and culture and so you're so you're still you're still together after all these years yes yes oh, probably will be for for many many more well that's <laughs> that's wonderful we we got a happy ending for once yeah we, yeah. we we've interviewed um uh, another michelle right um we interviewed uh, michelle what was her last name um the, the the michelle from forever cheese and and she's still partners with the guy that got her to spain but um, not romantic partners. They're, they're, right. So that and that's that we get that story over and over and over again. I know when I ask how did you get there, that's going to start with either um, a, a woman or a man. <laughs> so, sometimes both. It seems like. <laughs> yeah, it should be. True. <laughs> you know, you so, never you never can you never can tell with husbands and wives these days. You can't, which which one are you going to get? We're not sure. <laughs> Now tell me this, Adrian. I mean, she's, la- she's laughing. Isn't yeah, I know. Tell me. I know that the, the reviews that I've read, um, the products have been in media very well received and very well reviewed. Um, how it's it's a major change, cultural change, to get people to stop using single-use plastic. How has that worked? Um, it, I mean, it's been fantastic, but it's also been an evolution. It didn't happen overnight. I think there are insights and there are moments and events that help propel new energy into everyone's interest in, in cutting back their single-use plastic. Uh, having, you know, having David Attenborough floating in a sea of plastic garbage was certainly that a very helpful image. Yeah. Oh, he's he, it's a very he, helpful image for people to get their their head around exactly how much garbage we were did, throwing did, out. Did he do that? He's an he's an amazing yeah, guy. That was the he, thing must, that, he must be ninety some years old by now. Yes, yeah, no, he's a, an environmental champion and has been since before I was born. So, um, well, I and, can, and so it's an interesting thing because the, the plastic is a very real and very visible uh, challenge, and people are so much more aware of it now. Uh, than they were, you know, three years ago. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's definitely something that everyone is looking out for and they're more aware of. Um, and so we're glad to be a, a part, we're glad to be able to offer an alternative to people so that they can use less single-use plastic and less foil and disposable items. And all our products are reusable. We're trying to to create things for people where, uh, we make it easy for people to adopt sustainable habits. Sometimes people feel like they have to sacrifice convenience or they have to sacrifice, you know, the ease of use. You were saying dishwasher safe. Like those things are really important to us that we're trying to provide something so that you can replace all that plastic, but you don't, you know, you don't have to give up any convenience and it's still very easy to do things because that's how all that plastic got into our lives. It's yeah, sort exactly. Of, it all snuck into our lives in this promise of convenience. And how easy things would be. And so our hope is if we can help keep it easy and make it easy to use all the tools we, we come up with, but make them reusable and sustainable, that 
but that hopefully is going to be a winning combo. Now, talk to us a little bit about distribution. Where, 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 where can where can our listeners, recognizing that they're all around the world, how 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 widely available are the huggers? Well, we're I mean we are available around the world, so you can find us just about anywhere. Um, you can always get food huggers at foodhuggers.com. Um, I'm going to throw a, a small invitation out to any of your listeners. If they want uh, to support a local retailer right now, um, we're running a program where if anyone buys food huggers on foodhuggers.com and they list their local retailer in the, in the address of the order, um, then we'll send the profit of that order to their retailer. Oh, neat. So, yeah, so we're trying to help support some of those stores who've had to close their doors. I mean, it's, oh, been it's, a, terrible, it's an amazing time right now. You know, like some retailers, they're, they're so creative, and a lot of people have come up with, uh, you know, curbside pickup, or they're leaning into their websites more. Uh, we want to help our retail partners and our retail customers as much as we possibly can. Um, and and I'll bet I'll bet there's a hugger bugger somewhere in your future that does something different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what what where do you go from here, Adrian? Well, we're going to continue to come up with alternatives to things that are wasteful in the kitchen. So for us, there's there's any time someone is using a disposable or single use product, we want to offer an alternative. Um, and so we're always working on ways. To replace the uses that people have for single-use plastic in the kitchen, and then also ways to help reduce food waste because we're all um, much more aware of plastic waste than we were three or four years ago. But I think we're still just starting to get our heads around food waste as an issue. Forty percent. Forty percent is wasted. Yeah. yeah. No. I, yeah, and it's it's like forty-eight percent of fresh produce. Forty percent of the groceries people buy get pitched out, and and it's sixteen hundred dollars a year in groceries for the average American family of four. It's just thrown out. Like there, are, there's none of us who really can afford to be doing that economically, um, but also environmentally. All that food is going into landfills and creating a huge amount of methane gas, and that's that's something that's going to be more difficult to raise awareness of, because we will never be able to get David Attenborough on television in a cloud of methane gas to show everyone, <laughs> yeah. you know, how detrimental that is to the environment. And so well, it's no. going to be a much more, it's a much more abstract impact, but it's a very, very real impact. And, and if we could throw away less food, that would be better for all of us. Let me let me make a suggestion for you, because there's there's one... It's, you can't call it a kitchen device, really, although it's used around food and drink. And that's a really successful, really useful wine bottle restopperer. And I was reminded oh. of that. I was reminded of that because it seems to me like just about time for you to have oh, a glass yeah. of sherry. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where you are. But it, it, it turns out that the, m- most of them... Are not are not very successful. Yeah, yours is very good. What they've been using. Yeah. You. Oh well, there's one that I there's one that I have that's okay, but it's kind of it's kind of a nuisance. It's not it's not as good as I'd like it to be. 
And the, the only, and then, and then there's a story that lies behind that. So watch out for this one. <laughs> in, in, in one of the products we got sent, it, in, it included a stopper for sparkling wine. Right. And you put the stopper in, and you pumped gas into the bottle. Right. Instead, instead of having, instead of allowing the the. And then, and then we realized that although it was a very interesting concept, how often did we ever have any leftover sparkling wine? <laughs> yes, I was like, if there's leftover sparkling wine, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But I, 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 I do think there's, there's a, there's a space there for you if you, if you can come up with something that creative, and I'm sure you can. Yeah, it's definitely something we should be looking at. It's right, there's, uh, a very, a very fancy wine bar here in Madrid, and they uh, offer very interesting and rare and expensive wines by the glass, which is super unusual. Um, but part of how they're able to do that is they have these very high-tech devices that are in the necks of the bottles that help keep the, the bottle from effectively, you know, being opened or exposed to air. But, what, but what the you... downside of it is that when they pour it, it comes out like just one drop or two drops at a time. It takes like five minutes for them to pour a glass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, Sounds I, like a project that you need to resolve. I'm thinking that for, for for home for home use, it's 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 even there's even more potential demand there. So give it give it a try and let us know what happens. Well, yeah, I, I will. I, I'm definitely signing myself up for some research. That's for sure. <laughs> Good. Well, well, thank, thank I'm, you. I'm super happy that that you progressed with this because it's just every bit that that we do that can help resolve this problem is a very important, a very important step. And, and yeah, yeah. And, we, and we, sometimes and I, I get so frustrated too that we we keep it in, in a positive tone too. Like it's. We're trying to make uh, make sure that all the things that we're offering are fun and and enjoyable to use and easy to use and 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 make the kitchen just a more fun place to be. Yeah, well, while still being sustainable. You know, there's the, the two things don't have to be mutually exclusive by any stretch. Um, I have a question: are, are you supposed to take the pit out of the avocado or not? <laughs> I believe you should leave the pit in. I know, because if you've cut an avocado and you've got, one half has a pit and one half doesn't, then I I have always heard that you leave the pit in and you save that half. And that's why the avocado hugger has a reversible pit pocket. Well, that's why I introduced that, so you could bring that up. You, you you think of everything. I you know, I, I just automatically leave the um, the avocado pit if I make a, a guac. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the problem is you have to remember you left it in there. Or you'll break a tooth. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, well, Adrian, in, enjoy Spain and and um, love to everybody there because I love. Spain, and we wish you. Know, and we wish, well, wish you. Yeah, I hope. I hope the next time you guys are in Madrid, you'll give us a call. I'll take you out to the very slow poor wine bar. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> sounds sounds like a good deal. In the me in the meantime, we hope that you and your fellow citizens recover recover some fi- fi- uh, some some little replacement return return. I guess of of life the way it used to be. Yeah, I can't picture. Yes. Yeah, hopefully that that present. comes back to normal bit by bit. The and man- you guys also. I hope everyone 
at home is staying safe and and enjoying their little their time ex, their extra time at home with their loved ones and uh, and I hope everyone there is uh, safe and healthy. Adrian, thank you very much. Um, and uh, next time you're in Pittsburgh, please give us a call too. Okay, will do. Thank you so much, guys. Have a really good day. You too. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And for our final segment, um, here we have Sean Wittenberg, who uh, turned into an entrepreneur to solve a major problem um, as he watched his mother struggle with what was misdiagnosed repeatedly and turned out to be um, a mercury poisoning from seafood. <laughs> and that's another big problem that we're facing in today's uh, current waterway situation in, in society. So he, start, he started Safe Catch, and it's a an absolutely wondrous uh, process for delivering a canned, safe, canned and pouched. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Go ahead, love. Yes, Sean Wittenberg, um, you're the, the founder and, and CEO of a company called Safe Catch that seems made for the moment. Um, explain to us, you were telling me about how you ended up from um, your college education into founding this company. Uh, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about that? First of all, yeah. what? how old is the company? I didn't ask you that. Well, I've been working on this technology and this company for about 16 years now. Oh, my goodness. But Safe Catch, the company and the brand, um, has been in the marketplace since 2015. I see. So before that, you did a lot of research. And developing technologies and integrating those technologies into food supply systems around the world, learning about um, the challenges that we face through industrial pollution and, and, and subpar environmental policies and how that impacts our food and then how that impacts ultimately our health and then trying to figure out solutions to put protective technologies between people and their food to ensure that those products that get to consumers are the healthiest and safest available. So you're really a scientist before a CEO, huh? You know, that's a, I, I think that we, you know, what we're doing is we're just problem solving. So, yes, yeah, scientists, you could say, but, I mean, ultimately our hypothesis, if you will, is, you know, um, healthy, pure food will lead to healthy, rich lives. And that's what we're trying to do is figure out, you know, across all food types, you know, what what can be done, if anything, to protect people and to, to reshape the way we participate in our environments to ensure that we're protecting these food sources and these and these categories for future generations through sustainability efforts and the in the environment itself and through processing techniques and, and, and ultimately through analytical testing to ensure that, that we can provide the safeguards that, that people can, 
can depend on. Now, you you didn't come to this out of the blue. You had a reason that set you on this course of investigation and product development, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, so um, to, to revisit a story we, we talked about earlier, yeah. you know, essentially in 2002, 2003, while I was at UC Davis studying, uh, my mom got sick at the time when she first got sick, the symptoms um, were those that let our doctor believe she had cancer. She had short-term memory issues, um, and she was having fatigue. She was having motor skill issues, you know, a variety of, of concerns around her cognitive ability. And up until this point, my mom was a very, very sharp lady. And so we uh, first go down through our doctor's guidance down the path of exploring potential cancer. Um, thank God there was no cancer. Um, then the next trip down the path was down the autoimmune disease, um, the rabbit hole, if you will. Um, yeah, everybody the- gets blames autoimmune disease. I mean, that's all I hear anymore. I don't so, think anybody yeah. knows what it is. <laughs> Maybe. I, I'm certainly no doctor. Um, so I just know that that's the path they did, and, and you know, that took us nowhere, and then ultimately it was a nutritionist and a dietitian who asked my mom and asked us if she had ever had her heavy metals tested. And sure enough, when she got her heavy metals tested, she was 10 times higher than the FDA threshold for mercury levels, and she um, had mercury toxicity, and that was the cause of her health issues, and we started to go down the path to get her well. At the same time as we were going down that path of chelation and those types of exercises to pull the mercury out of her body, we're trying to understand the issue. And so we learned that my mom, who had started a point-based diet system, um, realized that albacore tuna was only one point in the diet system. And so my mom, not knowing about mercury and fish, started eating albacore tuna almost every day, certainly regularly, you know, five times plus per week. And that was the source of her mercury exposure was that um, albacore tuna. And so we went out and looked into the marketplace, figured out how we could protect other people's moms and other people so that this issue that hit my family wouldn't hit anybody else's family. And so when we went out and tried to figure out what the issue was, our our mind and our research led us to believe that the, the issue was uh, a technology gap, meaning there was no... Um, low-cost, high-speed, um, commercially viable mercury testing solution that could be integrated into um, the seafood supply chains to do the type of testing to protect our most vulnerable consumers. Like now, that's awful because, I mean, I knew when I was pregnant with our son, who's now 41 years of age, that we had to restrict certain seafood because it was high in mercury. That, that goes back to the 70s, the late yeah. 70s. Yeah. Well, and, they, and nobody did anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, no one, you know, the, 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 the industry as a whole likes to go down the, the response of the benefits outweigh the risks. That's the narrative that right. the industry has. But, you know, if we use our minds and imagination and we work together as a community, we can create solutions that allows us to embrace the benefits while addressing those potential concerns so that we can constantly be working collectively to 
improve and to create, you know, those types of products that would be great choices for our most vulnerable consumers, like a small kid or a pregnant woman or whoever, um, by using science and tech to to really understand what's in our food and to make sure that those consumers that need ultra-pure products have a source to get it. Now, Sean, was your, was your mother eating a lot of raw albacore tuna, or was it canned albacore tuna? It was canned. It okay. was canned. It was part of the, it was an actual diet, part of this diet program, this point-based diet system. It was one of their menu items. Got it. So she okay. was buying it straight from them, and, um, you know, that's what happened. I mean, so the mercury in fish, you know, the issue of mercury exposure, it's in the fish, in the raw material, you know, just to, to give a, a little crash course on how mercury gets into our environment. The, the reality is that mercury's been in our environment since the creation of the planet. The reality is, though, that the mercury levels in our environment has been going up in parallel with our industrial revolution. Got it, okay. You know, yeah. And the transition of the globe being industrial powerhouses as India becomes goes from agricultural to industrial as China goes from agricultural to industrial they did those transformations on the back of coal and uh, they did so without any true environmental oversight so what they were doing is is they were burning coal without any scrubbers and the products of combustion was going out and up into our upper stratosphere rich inside trapped in that coal is elemental mercury so what happens is as we burn that coal, that mercury, HG, gets vaporized and goes into up to our upper stratosphere and gets into our rain clouds. And when rain falls, that mercury will fall into our oceans where a chemical reaction takes place and it becomes a new bond, an organic bond, called methylmercury. Methylmercury is sticky stuff and it will stick to plankton, it will stick to plant life, and smaller fish will eat that plankton and plant life. And then bigger fish eat the smaller fish and through a process of biomagnification, the average mercury concentration in larger, more predatory fish will be higher than those fish that are lower in the food chain. Got it. So, 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 fish like, so fish like sword, big fish like swordfish and tuna, and presumably have higher averages. But the the, the point that no one, the point that no one knows, and that we're one of the few people that really have a good understanding of this, is that. What happens as you go up the food chain is that the averages do go up, but what's more profound is the variance in mercury levels within those various species in the supply chain as you go up. So what we've learned from our testing of millions of fish is that in tuna, as an example, two fish that are the same size from the same school, otherwise identical, can vary in mercury concentration by over 20 times. Oh shoot! But you so, you actually rely then on technology and, and and isolating that danger. Correct. We realized that there was no batch testing, no special spot in the ocean because tuna's highly migratory species. They travel far distances. There's no there's no you know way to work through this problem except to test each fish one by one and pick out those fish that would be. Um, meet the standards for our most vulnerable consumers. That's how we aligned our standards. So if you were to go into our Safe Catch Elite or Safe Catch Ahi, those standards were set not by saying, oh, what can Safe Catch do to hit those targets, but to rather go into the medical community to look at consumer reports and Harvard School of Public Health and environmental working group and then talking to health and um, dietitians and saying, 
what levels would we have to hit, not so that you would say this is acceptable for sale, but to say that you would be excited to, to recommend these products to your most vulnerable consumers. And then we allow the medical community to set the standards that we have to meet, not us setting the standards that we think we can hit. And that's how we reshaped our business to not be in line with the industry, but to be in line with that medical community who gives everyone the advice or should give everyone the advice to live the healthiest, happiest life possible. Well, you know, it's such a widespread problem, though. I mean, they had that Oceanic Institute meeting in Japan never even showed up, you know. And, and I imagine that, that the number of, of cases that are safe catch are really so much smaller than the norm. Yeah, I mean, our you know, compared to our competitors and compared to untested tuna, the mercury levels in our safe catch elite will be between three to five times less because we remove that variance from the supply chain from our from our stock. But what do you actually what do you actually do with the ones that don't pass? We don't buy them. You don't buy them, okay? So you so test them before like, you you purchase. Before we buy them, like a sushi restaurant. If you were to go to a sushi restaurant, they have their spec, and it has to do with fat content and color and sustainability right. and all these attributes. We have those as well, but built into our spec is a is a mercury limit. And so it has to meet our complete specification. We have a 23-point organoleptic or sensory test to qualify each fish for conventional or traditional quality. And then we have a sustainability audit. We follow the guidelines of the Monterey Bay Aquarium uh, Seafood Watch Program for sustainability. And if it passes quality and sustainability, then we'll test it for what we call purity, which is mercury, where we'll test that fish one by one. It needs to meet all three elements in order to get past our team and get into the safe catch certified um, raw material stock. But how do you ever get this uh, uh, commercial scale? It's so uh, so detailed, and and it doesn't become very expensive. Yeah, so I mean that is that it is hard. I'm not going to say it's not hard, but that's what we set out to do. That's what happens from my point of view, having 16 years of experience in the space. Um, I knew that when we were building our tuna supply chain and our packers, we built it at scale from day one. So we started off with our own cold storage. We started off with um, the capabilities to test between six to 10,000 fish per day. Today we can test almost 20,000 fish per day. Wow. And to give you perspective on that, the FDA in the last 40 years has tested about 4,500 fish. Oh my goodness. That's, that's a fraction of a shift for me and, and the safe catch team. So, you know, that just gives you perspective. So when you go out and you look at this system, we started off with slowly in 2014 as we're building our first containers and our first products out. And each year we scale our operation to be able to, to grow and to double and to double. And that's what our company's been doing. Um, you know, we've been, we've been doubling every year since we launched um, by growing our base and and uh, all that's been done relative, with relatively little to no awareness about what we're doing. That's why opportunities like this to speak with, with you, Anne, and Peter are so, so well received because our greatest challenge right now is figuring out, you know, how to properly engage consumers and, and, and fish lovers around the world to let them know that there's an option to get them a healthier, safer um, 
product. Now, the other thing we must point out, and you can talk to this subject next, is it actually tastes very good. <laughs> you, oh, thank you. You, 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 do, you do things to it to, to make it really tasty. To, talk to our listeners about the pouches and cans and the, the kinds of things that you put in there to make them taste even better. Yeah, I mean, we took, we, we, we run, we, thank you for that, by the way, really appreciate that. Yeah, we spent a lot of time, we did actually 89 plus iterations of our, of our process before we got it to where, where we like it. So, traditional tuna is pre-cooked, then packed, then cooked a second time in a packing medium like water or oil. So that, it's a heavily processed product. Safe Catch does things totally differently. Um, than, than those brands. So for us, we don't take our tuna and put it into a pre-cooker. For us, we take our frozen tuna and we put it into an ice bath. And the reason you want to put it in an ice bath is you want to have it slowly uh, slack out overnight or thaw out overnight so it's just about 32 and a half, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, just soft enough to cut. And at that point, we hand cut and we hand pack essentially sushi-grade tuna steaks directly into our BPA-free packaging. We seal that product, and then we, we, without adding water or oil, and we cook the fish using our own proprietary al- algorithm. Um, we cook the fish slowly to without oil or water, and by doing it that way, you capture all the fat-soluble nutrients that are lost in conventional processing, think omega-3s, and then you also use natural fish oils to cook the fish so it just tastes better than you would by by adding artificial stuff to it. And keep the original uh, uh, nutritional value. I mean, that's... Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, you've also so, you've also been rather successful. I understand you, you sell your product in quite a number of places across the country. Yeah, yeah. We've been really lucky to um, partner up with some of the most forward-thinking retailers from around the country, really around the world now, Um who have, you know, given us an opportunity to to work with them and to provide this option to their guests. And we've been very blessed to see a, a very warm uh, reception to our lines. Um, and so, yeah, we've been growing very well. This this year we, we launched uh, Costco nationwide, or every, seven of the eight regions, and that was really big for us. Um, really transformational. Uh, we do a co-branded product, um, uh, doing testing work for, for Trader Joe's for a pouch that they do. And then, you know, we work with, you know, everyone from, from on the West Coast, from Sprouts and Safeway and, um, those groups. Do you have a, on your website, do you have like a store finder? Yes, yes, yes. If you go to safecatch.com, um, there's a store finder there where you can, um, type in your zip, and it will list out the, the available locations to find our products. And you can also get it off, you can order online or get us through Amazon. There's a few different ways to find us. Well, that's that's amazing. And um, I imagine uh, in the age of this current pandemic, uh, there's a lot of call for this product, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the thing that would I think your listeners would – easily understand is that this is a global pandemic and so the stress um on everything 
I mean, just literally everything is there. I mean, from the fishermen trying to get in to unload their fish, the 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 infrastructure there and keeping their longshoremen in in Thailand and other ports around the world healthy oh, is yeah. very challenging. And then the product gets in, and we have our own team testing and and finding cold storage, and then um, that whole piece, all of those different groups I'm talking about right now are all, you know, very, very concerned about getting sick themselves and are putting those precautions in and can't hire more people in those locations because they don't want to risk bringing in um, a person who may be um, COVID positive. And so that's just one little area of our business. You have the same thing here with the truck drivers and finding, you know, room on container ships to bring our products over and, and our warehouses here and the U.S. domestic ports, every single one of these groups that I'm talking about are all struggling to to keep up and perform given a very, very um, challenging environment. The challenging is, I don't know, how long do you think it'll last to go on this environment? I mean, I'm talking to people who, like, sold exclusively to um, restaurants and chefs. Oh, yeah. And they're, I mean, they're, they're flat. I mean, they're... they're that um, Danny Meyer let two thousand employees go in one day. Yeah, you yeah, know, really and and it goes all tough. the way down. It starts with the farmer or the fisherman. It just goes. Yeah. yeah. Right now, in the to 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 dovetail into that comment, I mean, right now in the seafood world, the fresh fish that's coming out, the the market for that has just dried up. So all of a sudden, these tuna fishermen that were fishing for fresh tuna that was destined for a sushi restaurant, that market is frozen. Gone. So there's no there's nowhere for them to go with that product. And you know, I mean it's funny. I, I was talking, I just called a check on a um, a a fish retailer um, in 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 Pittsburgh to see how he was handling it. And he said he's been crushed with people it, it, he's open, of course. Uh, so buying him out, he was bought out every day. I mean, and they'd have to turn around and order more. I don't understand why it's so different for one outlet like that. Uh, I mean, everyone is. I mean, there's every 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 market is different. People are just reacting. You know, you have to remember that the 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 eye of this. Storm or where it peaks out is a is a constantly flowing, moving target. That's where, true. You know, currently it's in New York, New Jersey. It's obviously beginning to explode in the southeast as well right now. With the news we're hearing about, you know, Georgia and Louisiana, and soon Florida. Obviously, I'm in California. Yeah. We've got you already had it. Yeah, yeah. And but we've been on quarantine or or whatever you want, stay safe quarantine for the last three plus weeks, four weeks. Other parts of the country have not been doing that, and as such, they're going to, you know, find that eye of the storm, if you will, or that surge will eventually go over them as well. And so we're kind of just watching the whole planet going through various stages of, of this process. Well, those, those, those who don't cooperate will inherit the wind. Yes. Some, somebody I mean, said. Ultimately, that's somebody said that. I can't remember who it was. And there at the wind, right? Yeah, I mean that's what we were going to say. So to your friends who are in food service, you know, 
the ultimate metric thing to look at from, from our point of view is just looking at our hospital system. So long as our hospitals are over capacity and they're beyond their their workload, we're going to find ourselves being quarantined and trying to protect our hospitals and our medical communities. And so until an area finds that their hospitals are back in, you know, back in the black, if you will, and out of the red, they, they, I, I foresee this extending on. So, you know, the, those communities that have done the best job of, of flattening the curve, as they say, will probably get back to movement sooner. And those that were trying to say this isn't a big deal and trying to say we'll get past it are probably going to feel this force stretching longer and longer. Well, Sean Wittenberg, you were a thoughtful as well as successful, um, uh, I don't don't know, I'll call you a scientist, an entrepreneur, a, um, I don't know, (laughs) what do you like to be identified as? Don't care. You don't care. Hopefully friend of the show is what you can call me now. That will work for me. (laughs) Great. Well, we, we, we wish you continued success. And we, we, Thank you no, so much. Not, not that you need a wish. I'm sure you're going to do absolutely fine. Okay, listeners, remember, you you want to have a clear conscience and, and know that you're eating healthy. You get safe catch. And the, the website is safecatch.com, and you can find out what stores will stock this and how you can get it. And uh, uh, it's a yeah, perfect so thing to have in your in your uh, pantry at this point in time. You'd be double safe. So, oh man! Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, man. Sean. Yeah. Well, I'm, I just lost all this would go away very quickly, and we'd get back yeah, to for normal. For us, for you, for all of our our fellow people around the world, I'd say country men and women, but it's more than that. We just hope this. I hope the whole world gets healthy and well soon. Exactly. So we share that with, that with you. Well, that's the thank motivation you so for for you and your company, Safe Catch. Anyhow, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Sean. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, there you have it. Reflecting on these guests today, we realize that we may have a lot of problems going on in the world. We also have a a whole bunch of talent, uh, strong characters, um, a great deal of ability to cope. And I would, it is very rewarding to see that we're all coming together on this. So come again. We'll see what we think up for next week. I'll see you then. And until then, bye bye.